0: The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt them back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 26 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week we are taking a look at Avengers number 24, From the Ashes of Defeat. Issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by Dick Ayers, and letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in January of 1966. Taking a look at the cover, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan. It took me a little while to pin down exactly what it was that was bugging me about this cover. And what I think it is, is the fact that it's got the entire white background. The Avengers don't look particularly bad. All of Kang's minions don't look particularly bad. But to me, the cover feels empty. With all of that white just kind of hanging out there, even though it's filled with the Avengers and Kang's soldiers. We can definitely see a difference in inking here on the first page. It is a nice big splash page, though this is one of several splash pages that we've seen lately that has Quicksilver kind of stuffed into the background. And I'm wondering if that's an intentional or, or unconscious decision. A weird choice, I've noticed lately, and I'm curious if Don Heck was even aware that he was doing it. Now, on the same token, Scarlet Witch is in the back, and in the last several splash pages, Scarlet Witch is ha- has featured prominently, so take that for what you will. But the issue starts off with Kang announcing to the assembled group, so the Avengers, Princess Ravona, and it looks like her father, probably a couple of advisors in the background. You can tell there's more people, but it's a little hard to tell who they are that Kang has launched his attack against Ravona's kingdom uh, out of revenge for Kang's scorned love of Ravona. Now, while Kang's soldiers are moving in, Kang is still on the inside, especially now that Ravona's defenders have raised what they call a Plasto Shield. Kang's attackers can't get in immediately. So, the Avengers are with him, and his soldiers are on the outside. So, the Avengers decide they're going to use Kang as leverage because... As long as they've got Kang, there's no way his soldiers can take over. They're basically going to use Kang as a bargaining chip. Well, it's a great idea in concept. Unfortunately, the execution's a little rough, and that's mostly because it's Kang, and he's planned for this kind of thing. He has all of these weapons and technological aids inside of his armor, so Kang is able to create a gas cloud And while the Avengers initially think this is a gas attack of some kind, it really is just a smokescreen to allow Kang to disappear. The smokescreen is dissipated by Quicksilver running around it and causing it to funnel out of the way, basically. I love the fact that, yes, Kang has his plan for getting away, but the Avengers have a plan for this kind of eventuality. It tells me that they're starting to learn a little bit more and they're more prepared. They're working as a team, but there's also the independent nature. They're not just going to wait for instructions. They're going to take action as necessary. So Kang has left. Captain America gives some sound advice, saying, that uh, the avengers should wait and see what kang's plan is because just chasing after him is going to play right into his hand so while they're waiting ravonna's chief of staff really pushes her to immediately surrender saying there's no way that we can stand up to kang's assault he's kang the conqueror after all you don't get the name the conqueror for being a nice guy it's not really how that works so ravonna's chief of staff recommends immediately surrendering to save as many people as possible. Ravona calls the chief of staff a coward, and then Captain America dresses this man down hardcore. Admittedly, just before this, he takes a couple of digs at the Avengers, calling them savages and things like that, but Captain America basically embarrasses this guy he shames him into making a hopeless stand now the scene is great because it demonstrates exactly how inspiring captain america can be gives this great rousing motivational speech the chief of staff admits you've shamed me we're going to defend the last man and then in the back of my head i suddenly went wait so cap just convinced this guy to stand to the last man as far as we know kang is here with like Thousands of divisions. They mention that a couple of times that Kang has thousands of troop units out there. Not troops, but troop units. So probably millions of men outside this kingdom waiting to just overrun it. And we'll see some examples of that in a minute. So Cap has basically convinced this guy to commit suicide in defense of his kingdom. I love what Cap is doing, but what he actually convinced the guy to do is kind of questionable. With that in mind, the Avengers are going to be joining him in the defense of the city. We actually see the defense of the city here next. I really like it because it's a lot of really cool science fiction just action. Kang's troops are shooting at this plastic shield. That doesn't work, so Kang orders them to switch tactics and use what's called a delta ray launcher, which passes right through the shield and starts blowing things up. Two interesting things here. One, I want to know how Kang got outside the shield. Because the shield was up before Kang ran away. And the shield is supposed to be impenetrable. Obviously, the Delta Ray launcher goes right through, but it's a special weapon designed to do that, apparently. How did Kang get out to actually command his troops? The other thing is there's a great panel here of Kang actually giving the order. In the digital version, the way it's colored, there is a Kang doppelganger right behind him. Blue face, purple, kind of the rest of headpiece, right next to him. I'll definitely be putting this on the Instagram because it is a great panel. Folks, by the way, if you're not checking out the Instagram, make sure you do. I put up a lot of various panels from each week's issue so you guys can actually see what I'm talking about. Now, as the Delta Ray launcher is managing to penetrate the Plasto Shield, Quicksilver, in this instance, is really being a legit hero in that he is doing a very stereotypical hero thing and saving a woman and her baby. And for his troubles, he gets blasted into unconscious. I have really continuously been impressed with Quicksilver in this book, at least from what I have read in modern comics. Quicksilver is usually far more arrogant and a bit more of a blowhard, kind of on the questionable fringe of hero. Coming back to these original issues of Avengers, Quicksilver is really doing his best to be a hero and he's doing a pretty good job. Although he's not perfect, he's really trying to act as best he can to prove he should be the leader of the Avengers. So maybe this is Quicksilver on his best behavior, but regardless, I'm very impressed with the character where I didn't really expect to be. Quicksilver is now unconscious. The rest of the Avengers have joined the fight at the front just as Kang's soldiers are able to get through the Plasto Shield, and we see them taking a very historical approach. What I mean is that if you're at all familiar with the story of the 300, there's a point before the battle where Xerxes threatens to block out the sun with the arrows of his army. The response from the Spartans is, good, we will be able to fight in the shade. In this particular case, instead of blocking out the sun with his arrows, Kang is doing so literally with his troops. They all have these little flying jetpack belt things, and Kang is filling the sky with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of his troops. We only get a, a single small panel kind of here of that particular image, but it's an impressive idea that we're not filling the skies with our weapons, we're filling it with us. Over the next few panels, we see the Avengers really understanding exactly how outmanned they are. It is admittedly a little jarring because we're jumping all around. Soldiers in the air with their attack on the defenders, the heavy artillery coming in, missile strikes, all within about four panels. A lot of things are happening very fast here, but it really underlines exactly what kind of odds the Avengers are against, where Kang has all of this power to bring to bear on them. They have a shield, a bow and arrow, and Scarlet Witch's hex powers, because, again, Quicksilver is unconscious, so he's not even part of the fight anymore. It's really impressive. I think that they would even choose to stand against this, but really, the amount of firepower Kang is bringing to bear on one little kingdom. It also serves a secondary purpose of showing the kind of chaos of battle in terms of how we are jumping from scene to scene to scene very quickly. It's a little hard to follow. It took me a read through or two to really grasp it, and I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it does give a, a sense of that kind of chaos. Now, as her kingdom really falls around her, Ravona is is still fairly safe in and around her palace. Everyone's realized that, you know, we're hitting the end here and we need to get the princess out. And unfortunately, right as they'd come to that realization, Kang's soldiers start showing up. Again, initially the Avengers are doing okay. However, as a demonstration of how much firepower Kang has, while the Avengers are able to easily take down small groups of soldiers, they are just overwhelmed by sheer weight of numbers. And the Avengers and Princess Ravonna are all taken captive. When they have been properly restrained, they are taken before Kang sitting on Ravonna's throne, Kang doesn't really know exactly what he wants to do with the Avengers, so he's just going to put them away in some kind of jail cell or prison and hold on to them until he decides what their fate's going to be. And he may take his time on that when he says, I shall decide their fate at my leisure. What Kang is far more concerned about is he wants Princess Ravona brought before him because Kang is in love with Ravona. Kang intends to force Ravona to marry him. Kang also issues a second order, other than bring Ravona before me, and that is to find Quicksilver. He says there's a fourth Avenger still at large. As we cut to here, we see that Quicksilver is in fact still alive, and he has been taken in by the woman he saved and her father, and he is slowly recovering. I like that fact, because so often we see someone get knocked unconscious and they're out for a while, and then they pop back up. That's not really how it works. You kind of take time to come too we see quicksilver supporting himself on a door frame and then he collapses he's still conscious but he's having a hard time standing he's obviously been been injured he's sweating in a little while we'll see the undoing of this because as we leave quicksilver here the father of the woman he saves i have some herbs Perhaps they can help quickly regain his strength. And, of course, they will, and we'll see that in a little bit. But at least for the moment, I like the fact that when Quicksilver gets up, he's not just immediately back to his uh, fighting strength. So once again, we cut back to Kang in the throne room. Princess Ravonna is brought before Kang, and Kang declares that they need to prepare for the royal wedding. But one of Kang's commanders, Baltag, interrupts, says, hold on a second, we have a code, and that conquered monarchs must be quickly slain. It helps prevent rebellion against Kang's rule. Kang tells Baltag off pretty quickly, but Baltag says, hey, I understand what you're feeling here, but the rest of the commanders are with me. This is our code. This is how we live. You know, we're not going to make an exception for just this one ruler because you like her. You know, we've been fighting loyally at your side and we demand that you follow the code you've set up. Kang instead sends them off and gives them a one-hour time frame to come and beg for his forgiveness for even insinuating that they may turn against him. Because one of the things Baltag says is that he awaits his decision, says, and take heed, tis we who command your legions. Right? There is a very unsubtle threat there of hey, you know, you may be Kang the Conqueror, but we are in charge of the legions. We run the troops. Of course, Kang's commanders don't really take very kindly to this, and they immediately start planning Kang's overthrow. So while this hour is passing, we see Kang in the control room dreaming, fantasizing about Ravona. He understands what's going on with his commanders, but he says he can't give up Ravona. This is how much he cares for her. And we can really see it in the art here that this decision is really causing Kang a lot of turmoil inside. He is this massive conqueror, this great warrior, and he's coming to the conclusion that as he's wrapping up his conquest of Earth, it's all fairly hollow. Quite honestly, he's lonely. He possesses all of these great things, but they don't mean anything to him anymore. Conquest for the sake of conquest for a long time was enough, but it's not anymore. Kang wants to fill that with Ravona. So we're, we're seeing a softening of Kang here, a humanizing of him. That will come into play very soon. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in depth at the end of the issue as to what's going on here. But for now, just keep in mind that Kang is having these feelings and we are being shown this for a very specific purpose. Kang's musings, however, are interrupted by, as he expected, the usurpation by his commanders. Kang is attacked by Baltag and the other commanders and is only able to flee very quickly. So where does Kang flee to? Kang actually decides to flee to the prison cells and he releases the Avengers. He starts with Captain America and then releases Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch. But Kang offers Cap a deal. Kang says, I shall be brief. If you and your fellow Avengers will fight at my side and save the life of Princess Ravona, I vow to return you to your own century. Unharmed. Cap questions him on this one. He says, you're not the generous type, Kang. Your legions are in revolt, right? And you need our help. Why not say it the way it is? Cap calls him out on his nonsense. Admittedly, Kang is in part telling the truth. Kang is doing this to save Ravona, He's also doing it because his legions are in revolt. Cap's not wrong. Kang is very much the pragmatist, while Kang is certainly working for his benefit here the whole time. Kang is only working towards Kang's benefit. If, by chance, that benefit also lines up with what the Avengers want, then so be it. He's willing to deal with that. He's willing to make a deal. Kang releases the rest of the Avengers. They all head out in a panel that is just drowning in narration, speech, and thought bubbles. There are four speech bubbles, two thought bubbles, and a narration box. That is a lot of text. I mean, a lot of things are going on, Cap is talking to the rest of the Avengers, convincing him to join the plan. Hawkeye is voicing his disagreement with the plan. Cap is thinking internally how he agrees with Hawkeye, but he thinks that Kang will probably keep his word because of his pride. Hawkeye drops the name of Dr. Doom, so Kang reminds us that he's related to Dr. Doom. Is it 100% story necessary? No. It probably could have spread out a little bit or cut down a little bit, but it's a lot of text in a single panel. So the first stop of Kang and the Avengers, it's like a bad 80s cover band or something. But their first stop is to free Princess Ravona. The humanizing of Kang when they do free her. He says, "Ravona, my soul rejoices that I have found you." And Ravona replies that she's never heard that tone in Kang's voice before, which is true. Kang is certainly more vulnerable than we have ever seen him. And the reality is he's probably more vulnerable than anyone else in this century has seen him. Right? He is Kang the conqueror. He is this unstoppable machine of violence and conquest. So to hear a warmth, a touching note in his tone is probably fairly surprising to these people. Now that Kang and the Avengers have freed Princess Ravona, they find their way to a small resistance group that is going to help them take out Kang's commanders and reclaim Kang's army for Kang. And at first, the citizens are not into this, but because Princess Ravona asked them to do it, they're willing to do it for their princess. So their first stop is an armory, and then their next stop is to take out Baltag. Now, Baltag is aware that Ravona has been released the avengers have broken her out of jail he starts issuing orders basically just say go find the avengers go find the avengers go find ravona It's becoming very clear to the other commanders very quickly that Baltag is not at all competent to be commanding this army at this point. Kang is the real brains behind it. They even say Kang would be giving better orders than this. Kang would have very specific instructions. And they have even said, we sided with the wrong man, but there's nothing we can do about it. It's already too late. They're now having to deal with the choices they've made and the fact that they've backed the wrong man just as they are coming to this conclusion, the Avengers and their resistance group break into the palace. This scene kind of reminds me, and I'm also a big Star Trek fan, the end of Deep Space Nine where Kira and Damar's resistance group is able to take over Dominion headquarters because they have sent all of the Dominion troops out, in this case, rather worse thing, to go wipe out all the Cardassians because the Dominion finds them disloyal. But the idea that this very small resistance group is able to break into the headquarters of this group because they have basically left themselves undefended. And that's exactly what Pal has done. He has very few troops. He sent everyone else out to go find the Avengers. Well, it turns out the Avengers found him. Him. The Avengers, along with Kang, manage to push back what few defenders there are, Kang gets to his controls, destroys all of the heavy artillery that Kang's troops brought with them so that it can't be used against him now, and between the Avengers and Kang and their resistance fighters, they completely overcome any resistance, push into the throne room, only to find Baltag and the other commanders already having been apprehended by none other than Quicksilver. In my first read-through of this issue, I was really starting to wonder at this point where Quicksilver was and when he was going to show back up. You know, we saw him get knocked out, then we saw him kind of recovering, and then it's like, okay, the book's wrapping up here. We're, we're at the end of the issue. Where's Quicksilver? Where'd he go? It turns out, like I mentioned, he did get his strength back. He was able to get ahead of what was going on in the chaos wrap-up Baltag and the other commanders. So, we kind of get to wrap up the issue here. Ravona thanks Kang for saving her from execution execution. execution and kang agrees to free her and in fact free her kingdom very very generous of kang given his past the whole the conqueror thing although it's entertaining shortly thereafter cap remarks on the number of troops he's lost and the the equipment that was destroyed and kang goes ah i've got more what i brought with me that's just a taste i've got plenty to replace what was lost That makes a little bit of sense right kang has conquered the entire earth except for this little area i buy that he has plenty more troops and heavy weapons and things available to him kang also makes good on his word and he starts to send the avengers back but as he does cap yells out a warning to look out behind him because baltag has freed himself and has gotten the weapon of a careless guard. Just as he fires, Ravona steps in front of the blast, saving Kang, but costing her her own life. Baltag is taken out by the rest of the guards, and the Avengers are sent back to the 20th century. We see that Ravona admits to her love for Kang, but that perhaps it was never meant to be. And so our issue ends on a little bit of a sad note. Overall here, we get a ton of character depth added to Kang, we find out that Kang is willing to do almost anything for Ravona. The fact that he defies his own code, and then defies his commanders, and finally sides with his enemies in order to regain everything, in order to free Ravona and prevent her from execution, is huge. It goes to what I was talking about earlier, about Kang being a pragmatist. Yes, everything Kang did was in his own interest. Saving Ravona so he could marry her. Siding with the Avengers to take you back his army. All of this is in Kang's best interest, but he is willing to give other people what they want in order to get what he wants. Right? He gives Ravona her freedom. He gives her her kingdom back. He sends the Avengers back unharmed. All of these things are things that don't necessarily align with Kang's ultimate goal of conquest, but in the moment, they line up well enough with what he needs to accomplish the immediate goal of regaining his army and preventing Ravona from being executed that he is willing to make the deals he needs to the other thing i want to talk about especially with kang here is the way we've seen him humanized in this issue half of the reason that they start making kang more relatable is so that when ravona sacrifices herself at the end here it doesn't seem all that out of place because kang isn't really perceived as the villain at this moment So this is a continuation from last issue. Last issue, Kang is absolutely the villain. No question there. But because of the things in this issue that are done to make him more human, he's not the protagonist of the story that really still is the Avengers, but he is less of the villain and more a supporting character. The other reason is to make it more palatable for the reader, for the Avengers to join forces with Kang. If Kang is this ultimate villain, this pure evil that the heroes are trying to fight, if you don't step that back a little bit, it makes it very difficult for the reader to believe that teaming up with that character is something that their heroes would do. Common cause or not... If you don't, one of the things that you'll be waiting for is the constant, the your know, sudden but inevitable betrayal, to quote Firefly. The reader is going to be constantly looking for that. And when you don't have that in the book, I think the reader is looking for something that isn't there and they're going to miss really quality things that are there because they're reading into things too deeply or they're ignoring other bits because they assume he's lying or something to that effect. So looking for that sudden but inevitable betrayal distracts from other elements of the story. When it comes to the art in this book, I'm still really enjoying it. What I will say is there is a noticeable change... I don't mean to sound too negative here, but it's not for the better now that we've gone back to our standard art team with Don Heck and Dick Ayers. That is not to say that Don Heck and Dick Ayers do not do a very good job on this book, because they do. But the fact of the matter is, the last four issues have been inked by two of the biggest names in comic books, hands down. Wally Wood, John Romita Sr. Those are two huge names in comics, two very, very, very skilled artists. So when you have the all-star team working on a book like that, when you go back to your standard guys, you feel the change, you notice the differences. Now, as a side note to this issue, you can't see it in the digital version. There is the the letters column in the omnibus versions, and I have some other references that have informed me of this, but in the bullpen notes, for this issue, Marvel announces the hiring of fan turned writer, Roy Thomas. Now, this is important because in 11 issues, Roy Thomas is actually going to take over writing the Avengers. He will be an editor for Marvel for a little while, and then he will actually take over the editor-in-chief role from Stan Lee when Stan becomes Marvel's publisher. So, starting with issue number 35, Roy Thomas will be writing the Avengers, and Roy Thomas is known for writing a lot of other stuff. He writes Conan, he writes the Star Wars comics for a while. Thomas just does a fantastic job for Marvel for a number of years. And so it's fun to see the first announcement of, of Roy Thomas joining Marvel. I believe that actually the first announcement was in a Fantastic Four issue. But it's, it's fitting to get an announcement in the Avengers since he will be a longtime Avengers writer. Also, a couple of quick but rather wonderful announcements. First of which is that I will be hosting a panel at Tidewater Comic Con this coming May 13th and 14th in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I will be hosting a panel specifically on a brief history of the Infinity Stones because, well, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe slowly working its way toward Infinity Wars next summer... And with the Avengers being heavily tied into the history of the Infinity Stones, I figure this is about the right time to go ahead and dive into that. The panel schedule has not yet been announced. However, when it does, I will make sure to let you all know. And I hope to see you all there. The second announcement is more of a future heads up. My wife and I are very pleasantly expecting our first child in the late July. Now, what that means for the podcast, we haven't exactly worked out yet. As my wife has become more pregnant and less able to do other stuff around the house, she has taken over the editing duties for Some Assembly Required and the other podcast, which I am a co-host of, Therefore, I Geek Podcast. So, obviously, with a newborn and her personal recovery, there will be some effect on the podcast yet we haven't quite figured out. I'm hoping to get a few episodes ahead shortly before our child arrives so that we can have a minimal disruption in episodes. And I will let you know when we get closer uh, what that disruption will look like, but it's probably going to be in the neighborhood of two to three weeks. Just letting you guys know that. As proper nerd parents, we have been calling our son Groot until he is born. That's what happens when the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 trailer drops about two days before the first ultrasound, is I have little Groot stuck in my head nonstop for several days, and, well, that's what happens. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, a classic Marvel villain joins the book. For Avengers number 25, enter Dr. Doom. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day you ever tried shawarma? there's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here I don't know what it is but I want to try it